Legends once told of a podcast lost now in the sea of time. These ancient recordings spoke of games and the arcane art of HTML5. Today, Jeff Blair and Matt Hackett bring these words back to life. It is lost cast, and may your ears receive it. Welcome to Lost Cast, episode 84. I'm Matt Hackett. And I'm Jeff Blair. This episode should have a disclaimer. Warning, there is hyperactive Jeff. <laughs> That's right. Surgeon General's warning. <laughs> if we could put a label on the side of the podcast, that would be great. You have uh, Mio going and you have coffee and you've, uh, you're getting hit from both sides. So you're going to be a hyperactive, violent Blair. And uh, I'm like riding this natural high of discovering behavior trees. Yes. Uh, so let's go through our topics for today. We're going to talk about uh, the mobile ecosystem real quick. We're going to talk about a very interesting company called Introversion Software, makers of Prison Architect. Uh, we might talk about some other stuff we saw in Gamasutra, depending on how we kind of meander through the conversation. And then last but not least, uh, <laughs> there's going to be behavior trees, which you were just frothing at the mouth to talk about. <laughs> That's such a great visual because it's basically how I feel. <laughs> Right, and it implies that it would make kind of a bad podcast because you're just going to be like, like, baby trees. You have like rabies, and there's all this like foam in your mouth. I gotta talk about this. It's gonna be like not informational, just kind of passionate rambling. It's pretty interesting though, because I think it's kind of a hard thing to wrap your head around, and uh, it, it the timing is perfect because it's like the very next thing we want to tackle for our next game, which we're not totally ready to start talking about yet but um so anyway let's get started with jeff cast uh first i haven't actually read this article yet so i i obviously give it uh three out of ten tiger hats (laughs) but uh (laughs) so there was a uh an article on uh TechCrunch about the mobile ecosystem and uh kind of reaffirms our decision earlier to say screw mobile that looks hard let's let's go back to desktop where we're more comfortable, we're more familiar, and it seems like there's more wiggle room for indies, right? It totally does. I mean, that's something that we, decision we made, like, I guess around Lava Blade. Yeah. Around that time when we were making that game, we had decided that, you know, we just, I don't know if we were, like, so smart that we were, you know, like, <laughs> had all these great <laughs> business reasons why we didn't want to do mobile. I know um, we weren't. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. <laughs> In all likelihood, we were just kind of like flying blind. We made a okay decision. Right. <laughs> I mean, not yep. to say that there aren't indies that have success on, on mobile, but it seemed to us that it was much harder, right? Yes. Yes, you can have indie success on mobile. It's possible. People do it every day. Maybe not every day, but anyways, it's possible. And uh, But we kind of saw that the road to get there would be one that was kind of paved by luck uh, to a certain extent. Yeah. Um, and, or, or maybe like just some really, really original viral content. Um, right. <laughs> both of which uh, we don't really have in spades sometimes. <laughs> right. Anyways, and so this article came out yesterday. Um, and it was making the rounds around Twitter and there's this infographic that people are like retweeting all over the place and stuff. But basically kind of what it comes down to is that uh, the mobile ecosystem is very much like top heavy, right? Yeah. So like the 1.6% of app developers are making like 
more money combined than everybody else in the ecosystem. And hey, so it that's sounds prob- like the American economy. <laughs> basically, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, but yeah, like it, it's basically like your EAs and your um, Disney's cl- Clash of Clans or whatever. And like, you know, those kind of developers. Yeah, Disney. Uh, yeah. They're making like all the money. And then there's, you know, kind of this like sort of upper middle class that's making like okay money. Right. And then everybody else is basically making no money. <laughs> yeah. Right. Which is, that's tough to see, you know. It's interesting because I saw uh, someone else tweet uh, about that article and they said, it was actually the guy that made um, Defender's Quest, uh, Lars, I'm going to butcher his last name, but Doucette? Eh, it could be right. It could be, yeah. <laughs> A lot of things could be right, Matt. But anyways, he was saying that, you know, he thinks that a natural expansion from desktop is consoles, e- even though there's a higher upfront cost with dev kit licensing and, you know, all the shenanigans that come into play when you're trying to uh, get like a game certified by Nintendo or Sony or whatever. Right. Uh, he was saying that that is a much better transition for desktop based indies than trying to go to the mobile world. Um, and I kind of agree with that. Uh, you know, like we were talking about before, um, we've long been skeptical of the mobile industry and, and it's weird because we often get people asking us like when are you going to bring this to mobile or are you going to bring this to mobile we should bring it to mobile and we're like uh, maybe i mean it's weird because we both kind of like mobile in the sense that we'd like to have a game for mobile and it seems like a nice fertile ground of new players and stuff but every time we end up thinking about the business implications of being on mobile uh we start to get depressed <laughs> <laughs> then we start drinking and we end up in a ditch. <laughs> right. <laughs> no, yeah, you, you can kind of see our trajectory. Like, we started off where we were comfortable. We started off in desktop. And, I mean, this is ancient. We've talked about this to death, but that was on Slot Arena. And then you can see uh, our path with, like, uh, Lunchbug was uh, was very much mobile. And, you know, it worked on desktop because, oh, it's HTML5 and you can. But it was a, we, we were there because of business reasons, you know. And then with Lava Blade, we actually launched it on desktop. It never actually launched on mobile. Uh, although, <laughs> it wouldn't be the first time that we were surprised to see one of our games on mobile. Like, what was... Uh, it was Rampart Rush. We were like, oh, I, we published that on, on iPhone? Okay. You did. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I might be wrong. <laughs> Maybe past Matt put Lava Blade up there and... Uh, I don't know. Then, then started drinking a lot. Maybe that was it. So we, yeah, we put we blacked up, out. We put up a game on mobile, and then we just drink. Yeah, we black out. <laughs> <laughs> Erase the memory. But so, no, with Lava Blade, you could see that it, it was on desktop. We released it on Humble. It was for Mac, Windows, and Linux. But it kind of lived in this weird place where you can almost tell by looking at it. It was probably designed for mobile, and it was, you know. But that's just not where we went because we didn't want to, and it wouldn't run well enough, and stuff like that. So it was another thing that just pushed us towards desktop. Yeah, we actually built it for mobile uh, on Cocoon JS and, and other stuff. Yeah. And like we had, I had a version that was running on Android. It was just slow, right? Yeah. I um, remember that was kind of disappointing because uh, we figured, yeah, of course, this will be great on mobile. Why Why not? It's touch-based, turn-based. Like it, it hits a lot of, of uh, good points on mobile, you know? But then we saw that the performance was really bad because even though there weren't a whole lot of sprites on the screen, every single one of them was using our dolls. So the, they all had like 12 different you know views or sprites drawing each individual character. So it was actually a ton of sprites and it uh, didn't run great. So, And at and that, that time too, we were kind of convinced that desktop was the way to go anyway. So we were just kind of like, screw it. 
Yeah, but we kind of had like one foot in each world and it really hurt us on both aspects because yes. remember when we did the green light for Lava Blade, people were like, take this mobile trash out of here. Yeah. Oh, we man. Green light hated it. And there's another round of drinking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, you know, there's always exceptions. Yeah, yeah. Like, okay, look at Vlambeer. They had a ridiculous hit with ridiculous fishing. Did you see what I did there? I, I did. It was very yeah. clever. And, and then they've also had a lot of success on desktop, but... Uh, I don't know. A lot of people will often point to the few successes, you know, and that is not your average developer. Like they've had successes. Any developer, actually, I think, who've who've had a hit for either luck or skill or just excellent marketing and development, like all the various reasons, they're already an outlier. Most developers don't have a hit, might not have a hit in the next five to 10 years. You know, like you can't look at that as an example to follow because your climate, by the time you get there, the climate's going to be so different. Yeah, and I think that's like the point of this chart, right, is that you're looking at this data and the data says that most people are not making money. That's crazy. So right. sad to think about too. Because like, there's, there's obviously going to be a lot of really solid content and you'll see these articles pop up about some really great game that was designed well and implemented well and uh, nobody knows about it. Yeah. And then Sad. you have things like, uh, you know, like this, uh, I don't know if you've been following this controversy between threes and 2048. Yeah, a little bit. So basically what happened is there's a game called threes and it's this like beautifully designed, well put together puzzle game. And, you know, the guys that made it is like a couple indie dudes and like they spent, you know, months or a year or whatever, like iterating on these puzzle mechanics to get it just right. And then like, they launched it or whatever, and this guy comes along and kind of like not maliciously, but he cloned it, but in like a more simplified way. Right. And made it free. And so like that app has just kind of taken off. And, you know, they're kind of like a little bitter about the fact that, you know, they spent all this time coming up with this great puzzle mechanic and then it was like cloned in a weekend. Um, and I think that's kind of one of the big dangers about mobile is that the games often have like very simple implementations you know? yes not to say that it's easy to design those games i mean there's a lot of work to go into them but because of the simplistic nature it makes it easy for like a clone shop to just come along or even just some dude on the weekend and be like here i made like a, a version that's like 80 percent as good and it's free so yeah have fun with that <laughs> i see it as uh, as cooking sometimes you know like let's say you're a chef and you come up with this recipe like oh i don't know this is gonna be terrible example don't try this at home but like let's say just like some coleslaw you know and you come up with this really amazing coleslaw and everybody's had coleslaw it's not a big deal but you put like you know curry in yours or something and that's very simple right but it took you a long time to get there you tried every combination of spices and various ways of cooking it different recipes and everything and you found like this this very simple classic recipe but yours is kind of unique because you put curry on it it <laughs> Again, don't be too. Don't focus on the specificity of, of, of this example. <laughs> this is a really bad example. <laughs> but yet you're hey, going to continue with it. My analogies are just rotten. There, um, yeah. But rotten once it's coleslaw. out there, yeah, like people out there, like they taste it and they're like, "Oh, this just tastes like coleslaw with curry on it," you know. And then it, that's easy to replicate, you know. And people tend to like the general audience in the world. They don't know or really care where it originated from necessarily. Yeah, only a subset of people will actually care about the origins of something. I remember uh, several years ago when, uh, you know, Zynga was in its heyday and Farmville was a thing, there was a lot of confusion about who was cloning who because, uh, far or, uh, sorry, Zynga was cloning all <laughs> kinds of other games and uh, you would get, like, 
the general audience of these millions of gamers who don't really know much about the industry, they'd find out a little bit about it and be like, oh, hey, everybody, don't play this other game because it's a clone of Zynga's game. And it's like, no, you get that reversed. <laughs> Zynga has been cloning. Uh, you know, it's it's like too much for your average person to really care about. Yeah, right. But yet they, they seem to, right? They do, yeah. It's like they, they take this passionate stance on little information. It's like they, they care, but only... Like, as it pertains to their lives, it might be like, oh, you're playing that game? That game's a clone. And they're like, oh, I don't want to play a clone, you know? And then they'll right. they'll do something about it. They'll, you know, tweet about it, like, oh, hey, don't play this game or something. But, you know, they might not care enough to spend the time to research and actually look up who cloned who, or if it's true, or which game came first, or, like, what the implications there are as well. It speaks to the fact that people love to be outraged for pretty much any reason they can possibly find. <laughs> <laughs> I've known a lot of people in my life who... Uh, they're happiest when they have a hill to stand on, yeah. you know, and that, that's totally fine. Like that's kind of what an activist is, right? You know, I got this hill to stand on. It's civil rights, or it's you know, there's some local politics in my area that I'm very passionate about. But you know, there's also people who are like, "You said something bitchy to me the other day." <laughs> and you're like, "That's your hill you're standing on?" I was joking. Like that's a weak hill. You're but some people hill. are just happiest. I'm a weak hill. How dare you? I I don't know. <laughs> Anyways. Yeah, my analogies uh, again, terrible. <laughs> so terrible. Yeah, it's kind of like this competing forces to one make the game simple and accessible because the audience for mobile is concerned with simplicity and accessibility and ease of interaction. Typically, I mean, it's not yeah. always true, obviously, but like you know, if you look at how people play games on mobile, they're like on the train or they're like waiting in line or I mean, you know, they're often doing things where simplicity is the best so check out this amazing segue i'm about to attempt on mobile everything is kind of uh pushed towards this funnel of simplicity you know you want like like that's why flappy bird was a runaway success is because there's really nothing to it this little bird you just tap the freaking screen you know and because that's so simple it's it's just completely trivial to clone like you and i could make a flappy bird clone from start to finish in a weekend i'm sure you know oh easily and that combined with the general, like, I, I depends what country you're in and yada, yada, yada. But I know for sure in America, the copyright rules um, for games are often not helpful. You know, there's certain uh, precautions you can take and all that. But on desktop, it can be a little different. You've got more room to make a complicated game for, for lots of reasons. You know, you've got more processing power. You've got more real estate for interface and stuff. Um, and you also have more players who are like, okay, I'm at my computer and I'm going to be here for a couple of hours where there's room for complexity, you know, whereas on mobile, you might find more success with like this, this player might have 20 seconds, <laughs> you know, between meetings or in the bathroom or like two minutes while waiting for the, for the train or something, but it's like minutes instead of hours. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, and so I've been following uh, introversion software and their uh, hits prison Architect, which is a extremely complicated game, you know, like reverse engineering that and cloning prison architect and all that stuff would not be a weekend process you know right. like that would probably take months or years to to follow that game and that's why you're going to see just fewer of those problems of clones and ripping off and that kind of stuff on on desktop because if someone actually attempted to to make a game like prison architect and if they were going to spend that much time they would just make their own flavor of prison architect which really wouldn't be a clone it would then be fine it would just be it's a game like the genre 
Yeah, like it, it can be very tempting to to be like, I, I could make Flappy Bird very quickly, so I'm just going to do it. And because there's not much of a commitment there, you're kind of like, eh, whatever, it's Flappy Duck. You know, like it's so just barely different. But if you're going to commit a year or years of your life to, you know, coming up with a, a Me Too kind of game, the general wisdom there is to, you know, well, it's going to take you years to follow it. Don't just follow it. You know, you have to change it 10% or, or some amounts, like add your own flavor to it, you know? And that yeah. pushes the developer farther from the cloning mindset and more into like the inspired mindset. I feel like Flappy Bird is like the breakout of this generation. Which is kind like, of depressing, isn't it? Yeah, I'm so sick of seeing Flappy Bird clones <laughs> or like Flappy Bird is a dog or Flappy Bird is a nyan cat or Flappy Bird is the burrito i don't know it's like yeah it's just, uh, oh man even stop. uh unreal was it udk4 like their <laughs> their premiere game was some flappy bird clone at least they had this thing i think where they were pushing uh where they were like yeah you can build flappy bird with basically just uh user interface tools like just dragging and dropping and stuff which is kind of interesting but at the same time like UDK is made for AAA console and desktop games. You know, it's it's got amazing lighting effects, crazy polygon action, just just beautiful, realistic-looking scenes. And then what they make with it, like this is what they've been advertising for a while. Was like, hey, here's this flappy bird. Yeah, I it. thought that was extremely ill-advised because you know who UDK is competing with? Unity. Right. Yeah. You should be attacking Unity. You should not be attacking like anything could be made with like. Uh, an html5 game engine someone wrote over the weekend right like yes <laughs> your value add to game development is so far above flappy bird that it just it cheapens their product i think yes yes cheap yes i completely agree with that it took this massive giant amazing thing and kind of trivialized it right yeah perspectives everything i don't know i mean not that i'm a business or marketing person but that struck me as like a really bad way i lost respect for udk even though i've never used it <laughs> i give it two tiger hats <laughs> having not used udk that is <laughs> right. an appropriate metric uh it's interesting to think about because we are for better or for worse we are marketing and business development people we just you know do it part-time we're almost like a hobbyist <laughs> but marketing and business development type people we are, you know, jack of all trades, masters of none kind of people. Yes, exactly. We're yeah, we do business development and marketing. We're just kind of crap at both because we, you know, <laughs> we do everything might... <laughs> badly, badly. <laughs> Hopefully, the good parts are the game design and the game development because it's that's really no. our core. No, oh. <laughs> I was going to mention earlier when we were talking about Lava Blade that you know we kind of made this fundamental mistake where we wanted to target mobile-ish and desktop-ish, but we developed everything on desktop. So by the time we got close to shipping on mobile, we were like, oh, it's not very performant. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't Oops. know about you. To this day, I still am very tempted by mobile. I, I just hate having a device in my house that, or like just in my life that, that I can develop on, but I don't, you know? That drives me kind of crazy. Like I look at my Xbox and we've tried. There's just no way to do it. It would be we'd have to basically rewrite the game in Visual Studio and that's just stupid, right? So, like, right. I can write it off. And, like, the Wii U, I've got plans. Like, I've got my eyeball on it, you know? I look at my iPhone and I'm like, we got Cocoon JS, we got HTML5. Like, I can develop on this thing and I want to. It's, it's still tempting. And, and there is that thing where, like, oh, it buys you a lottery ticket, you know? 
and that has its it's tempting as well but i feel like that's an illusion you know it's a it's a mirage right <laughs> it's uh i think it's hard for us especially because when this is something we identified earlier on in our life cycle and, and what kind of pushed us towards being desktop focused developers is that we just don't play mobile games uh yeah <laughs> i play i have like maybe five mobile games on my phone and i don't like any of them and i only play them <laughs> when i have no other option and i'm so bored that you know that's like you know on the rare occasions i do leave the house and i have to wait in line or i'm at the dmv or something you know like once every year yeah then i'm like oh god okay i guess i'll play this piece of crap <laughs> yeah I, I agree there hasn't really been any mobile games that have pulled me in but uh i don't know i mean we're we're probably far less likely like we're not we're not the average mobile gaming audience you know we're, no, we're that, more that's desktop the, that's the point right like we we realize that we we're not in touch with that audience right because we don't belong to that audience and therefore we kind of figured that we would be bad at making content for that audience right yeah and i think that we were right <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and that's that's really gratifying to see because, you know, we often talk about Slapsville and how we want to slap our past selves and all the mistakes we've made and, and stuff like that. But I think fundamentally we've made some good decisions uh, and, and one of them being to focus on desktop instead of mobile. Because I can almost guarantee you if we had a game of the same caliber of a Wizard's Lizard on... And it's cross-platform, so maybe we should say that like... You know, the equivalent of a Wizard's Lizard on Mac, Windows, and Linux, and Steam, I suppose would be, you know, a decent game on Android and iPhone and iPad, you know, like there's versions of it. And for... Tizen. And Tizen, yes. <laughs> Everyone loves Tizen. Oh, yes. Apparently. You were saying that if we had a game of the caliber of a Wizard's Lizard and on the kind of like uh, respective platforms within the mobile ecosystem, something, something. I don't think it would be anywhere near as successful as a Wizard Lizard has been. I definitely you know? agree. I mean, it might be, but it would be a complete crapshoot. Whereas I feel like with a desktop game, if we can make enough noise, uh, we can see moderate success. Because I, I think that, who knows? I mean, Wizard's Lizard is hard to say. Like, did we get lucky? Is it a decent game? Um, is this just kind of par for the course? Like, if you make an okay game with an okay set of marketing initiatives that you'll make some money? I don't know. It's, so it, it's hard. Th- this is uh, this is related. There was another article on Gama Sutra. I believe the game was uh, was Monochroma, and I've seen a couple different articles like this pop up. You know these um, you see these post Steam release articles. What was the other one? Was it Super Combo Man? No, it was well Ibn Ab. I think was one we Ibn talked Ab. about recently. So it's been really interesting because if you build it, they will come. Is the general thinking on on Steam? You know, and that's why people are scrambling to get on Greenlight and all that. But it's not true. If you release, a, if you have a game and you launch it on Steam, like, like everyone will shrug. You know, Steam itself has this massive amount of games, and it's still on you to go and find that audience. You know, right? For a Wizard's Lizard, it's it's really hard to say why it, it did find some decent success. And I mean, just on a small scale, like just for us, it's 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 doing okay. You know. Like you look at other, you know, <laughs> other actually successful indie games, and there's like an order of magnitude behind. But at the same time, we've seen like 20x the success of some other indie games, and um, I think it's a combination of things. It's uh, you know, inadvertently we we d- did this kind of open development, early access style, where you know we started on Kickstarter, we had a, a demo ready to go pretty early on, and we were 
pushing out alphas on a weekly basis because of the Kickstarter. And, you know, it wasn't the noisiest thing ever. We didn't get a whole ton of new users or anything, but we we were putting ourselves out there often and, and weekly and, and screenshots and updates and, and just being noisy. And people tap into that. Yeah. And we did I, that for a long time. I feel like our path to relative success was just this ladder yeah, uh, of ever increasing audience size and just, you know, like you said, being noisy and, you know, each kind of event that we had helped us a little bit, you know, Kickstarter, I think the Kickstarter was better for us visibility than it was monetarily, obviously. Like, yeah, I think so too. We had a low <laughs> kind of amount and we didn't get that much, but it was a success and it introduced us to new people. And, you know, I think that Kickstarter is kind of going the direction where people are starting to get fatigued with it, but yeah. I think that we hit it at a time when it was not super notable to have a Kickstarter, but at least it got us some kind of attention. Yeah. You know, and then we had like um, a beta period where you could like pre-purchase the game. We were basically doing early access, but we weren't on Steam. We were just doing it through Humble. So there was like a, a special Humble package you could buy that was the early access version. And so we were yeah. doing that and we we're releasing alphas every week and then we were on green light and we launched and you know it's like just kind of like stair step stair step stair step and at every point along the way you know the game could seem like a complete failure you know like okay monetarily on kickstarter we raised like 10k right <laughs> which and is then, not enough <laughs> not enough no and then uh over the course of the early access i mean we probably sold like you know maybe a couple thousand dollars more worth of early access units yeah maybe a couple thousand maybe and then we launched right and we saw um some pretty decent pickup like uh, the the biggest thing that started pushing us forward was then the streamers right and the streamers right kind of got to this point where we made like another like eight to ten thousand dollars uh maybe in our first month of launching uh via the humble widget um and so that was nice to see but again that in isolation would have been like okay so you made like 20k ish off this game lifetime so and, the, the green light yeah. approach to me has been really interesting because it's not what we wanted to do and i i don't even know if we'd do it again i mean only if we had to basically like we went to green light uh by having no other option and i kind of wonder in retrospect if it hasn't actually helped us because when you're on green light what from what i've seen is the farther along your game is in development, the better. So, like, if you've got nothing but some concept sketches, it's going to do terribly. And, it, and on that sliding scale, if you have a game in mid-development, it'll, it might do okay. And if you have a finished game, like we did, then uh, it could do pretty well because I think it creates this kind of desire. It's not just like, you know, Kickstarter where here's a potential game that could exist someday, maybe. Are you interested? Instead, right. <laughs> it's this game is for sale right now. And, and that changes the mentality a lot because you'll get people who are like, oh, I want to play this right now. And this is available right now. I want it. But I only play on Steam. So pass. But they'll add it to like, their wish list or their, and they'll upvote it. And, and you kind of retain them in other ways, you know? Yeah, Greenlight definitely has that same Kickstarter effect where you get introduced. Like, I actually kind of think that we might want to do it again just because it's like a free avenue of, of eyeballs. It's free traffic from Greenlight, that's for sure. Right. And there's like a non-trivial amount of people that browse Greenlight. I mean, it's certainly yeah. nothing compared to like being on the homepage of Steam, but, you know, we've already paid $100 to be part of Greenlight. Right. And, you know, we might as well put our next game on Greenlight just to get any extra eyeballs we can. I think we came out of Greenlight, uh, it was only, we were only on there for about a month, 
and we had like 5,000 wish list. Do you mean yes votes? Like, yes, I would buy this game. No, I mean people who added it to their wish list. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't think you can even add a game to your wish list if, you ha- if it's not on Steam yet. Oh, I see. So maybe it was something more like there was 15,000 yes votes or something. Right, I think it's and more likely. we were just hoping that, and it makes a lot of sense for Valve to do this, that they would contact those people once it actually launched. And, and that was a pretty good sell after that because it was like, hey, you remember that game you said you would buy once it's on Steam? It's on Steam now, and it's 34% off. Like, that's that's pretty good sell, you know? I don't, I don't think they do that, though. Yeah, maybe not. They, but there's still people who, like, it's, it's going to retain them one way or another, you know? Right. Like, they voted on it, they see it, and whether or not it's bubbled up to them... Um, Honestly, that's just leaving money on the table if, if Valve is not contacting those users in some way. I agree. I mean, I, Valve is kind of like opaque sometimes with the way they do things. So, I mean, they very well could do yeah. it. And it seems like if we thought of it, they've thought of it. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, who knows? So, I think with a Wizard Lizard doing okay, it's it's been like some things on accident, some things intentional. Like, like fundamentally, we wanted to focus on desktop and a core experience there. Um what we've seen from Introversion is really interesting. Prison Architect has, has been selling incredibly well from what I've seen. And uh, these uh, t- the two primary developers have been putting up, uh, I believe it's weekly videos, but it's basically like a 30 to 60 minute video from what I've seen of just, you know, gameplay and the two developers will just talk about what's new in the game, you know, uh, any bugs you've got, uh, that, that kind of stuff. And I really like that openness. I really like the the focus on on desktop and video content and the transparency, and uh, I, I'm positive every single time they launch a video, they see an increase in sales and interest. You know, it just seems really smart and like the kind of path I think would make a lot of sense for us to to follow. It's kind of like overgrowth. I think they have the same thing going on where they have like this really consistent video schedule, and they right. have this great fan base that really responds well to. Like I have really no interest in overgrowth. And uh, I'm not part of the alpha, but occasionally I will watch those videos just because they're interesting. And so, like, it's on my radar, you know? And, like, one day they might wear me down to the point where I'm like, you know, this game looks actually pretty cool. I'm going to buy it and give it... Oh, I'm sure I'll get that in a bundle (laughs) someday. Yes. It's not really my bag. I'm not into... Not that into third-person games. I don't really like fighting games these days, and that seems like um, very combat-heavy. Like you're you're doing complicated moves, like a, like a ground leg sweep kick and like a jumping, flipping kind of. You're like a rabbit ninja, basically. Right. And I'm sure to some people that that sounds amazing. It just doesn't float my boat. But I am very impressed with their their open development, um, all of the uh, the talks they give and the videos, and just hearing about why they make this decision or that decision, uh, keeping the animation costs down through clever use of, uh, of algorithms, uh, really smart stuff. And it is fascinating to see. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting to watch. I think it says a lot that, uh, basically there's a game that you probably have no interest in as a game, but they've found a way to pique your interest. Yeah. 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 Like, like it only has to be one thing that I find interesting about something for me to latch on to it sometimes. Right. Um, the interesting thing you said about introversion software today that I did not know was that they've been developing for 14 years? Uh, something like that. Definitely over a decade. I forget the exact number. But, I mean, they've got a long history of games, uh, a really impressive portfolio. And uh, the article that I'll link to in the show notes kind of goes over, 
you know, the history of that and how they've they've been out of money a lot and they've had to break ties with people they were working with because they just couldn't afford to pay them. And basically just this long winding road, you know, from the outside, you might be like, hey, this hot new indie company called Introversion Software and their brand new first game. Like we've actually seen that many times. Many people have reported Lost Decade Games' first game of Wizards Lizard. You know, that's a very common thing. And I think that Introversion's probably seen some of that as well. But in reality, they've got a yeah, portfolio of games. They've been doing this for a long time. And, uh, you know, at that point, it starts to feel less like a fluke and like an accident. And like, oh, yeah, we got lucky, which, which happens. You know, like, oh, it was our first game and it sold a billion freaking copies because lightning struck us, you know. But with Introversion, it's more of this slow, steady build. And it's actually very... I don't know, kind of comforting to read it because it shows that if you work hard, if you're lean, if you don't waste money, if you focus on improvement, which is so important, like you can't just keep releasing the same bar. You have to raise the bar. You have to, you must be better, you know? Right. Uh, If you have, if you do that for enough time, you can find success, you know? And that I think is the, the most critical part is a lot of people either don't want to put the time in, can't put the time in, and it takes a seriously massive amount of time. Well, I think that uh, if you look at some indies that I respect in the space, it's like, you know, Cliffsky, Cliff Harris. Yeah. Um, he kind of built his company the same way. And uh, Jeff Vogel from Spiderweb Software. Uh, both of those guys kind of have that same approach where they're like lean, efficient, and like build portfolio, cross promote, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Yeah. And like not to toot our own horn again, but. Uh, I think we were just talking about this earlier, actually. One of our prime characteristics, one of the best things that we've been ma- that we've managed to do is we've stayed lean. You know, like it would be great to hire people for various things, and I, you know, <laughs> we haven't really been paying ourselves salary. We, we baby, we basically pay ourselves enough to pay rent, and that's it. The the rest is lost decade money. And uh, I'm not gonna lie, I haven't been pulling a salary for like two and a half years, and I, and I miss it. I miss money. I would love to have some money, but you make sacrifices, you know, you scale down when you need to. And the hope is that someday we'll be able to be like, okay, like what would you actually be getting paid right now? If, (laughs) if you had a real job, maybe we can afford to pay ourselves that like, that's the goal, right? Yeah. But you need to be able to scale down and, uh, and be lean. I think it's really important. Don't, don't freaking waste your money. Yeah. It's, I only want to touch on this subject, but, uh, the Yog Ventures thing, obviously is kind of a a prime example of like a completely mismanaged project that was not lean, you know? Right. They, it's interesting, you know, I mean, obviously they're, they're trying to make a game like way larger in scope than we were trying to make, but you know, they did a lot of things badly and they were not lean. So, uh, in case you're not familiar, I'll, I'll just quickly go over the story here. So, um, Yogscast is a huge YouTube, uh, phenomenon that we've talked about before. They've got a really impressive, massive channel. Uh, check it out at youtube.com slash yogscast. It's lots of like Minecraft and World of Warcraft and indie game entertainment. Really great videos. And, um, and back in 2012, they probably had, you know, f- less millions of, of subscribers, <laughs> but they still had this massive uh, fan base. And I'm not sure about how the, the deal arose or anything, but basically Yogscast started to work with uh, a game development studio right here in LA called Winter Cool Games. And I think they were like a six-man team or something. Uh, and they asked for $250,000 in Kickstarter, and they got over half a million dollars. And this was 2012. And then now, in 2014, very just recently, they announced that they're out of money and they're ceasing development. 
And that's just fascinating to see. Uh, and also, the news has been rolling out kind of over time. You actually saw it pop up on um, the news a couple days before I did. And then I saw it in Joystick. And then just today, my brother pinged me a link on Kotaku. And one of those articles had a breakdown of where the money went. And it's, it's just shocking to see that, you know, like $35,000 for this artist who only worked for two weeks. And Yeah. One of the things I thought was really interesting is that they never actually had like a lead programmer. Oi. Like... That was one of the things they were supposed to do is hire a lead programmer using 100K of funds. And they just, yeah, it never happened, you know? And then you kind of, you're like, well, that's not that, you know, programmers are the, the only thing as a metric to success. But if you don't have someone that's directing the development of your game in a meaningful way, like that is a, that's a pretty bad <laughs> We're going to build a building and we have no bricklayer, right. no foundation to build upon. It's kind of like what that is. Like we'll figure think- it out later. <laughs> Yeah, surely we can get a lead programmer. Uh, we have half a million dollars. Come on, how hard can it be? Right. Uh, I think the biggest red flag to me on that entire project is the scope. Like when you hear about it, it's <laughs> like in the pitch on the Kickstarter is, oh, it's like Minecraft, but you know, with actual polygons instead of voxels right there, already extremely hard to do. And yeah. it'll be totally moddable and every uh, request from potential customers will be fulfilled and it's basically just the sky's the limit it just sounds like the holy grail of games which you know (laughs) it's gonna take more than half a million dollars in a in a fairly inexperienced team of six you know like (laughs) oh here's the other thing how about a thousand employees for five years and then maybe you might get like an inkling of of what you were going for as far as i know too the lead guy was like working full-time at some like kind of you know day job nine to fiver presumably in tech or whatever and then you know this was like you know he was moonlighting as this video game studio head oh such a big red flag i okay i I know we i know our audience i think we've got a lot of hobbyists and you know people who really want to be game developers and are taking steps towards it i don't want to offend anybody but when you're talking about a giant massive like like i just talked about the scope of that project was incredible you know when that's the case part-time is not part of the conversation you know no, i can't not. take that seriously like it's a very it's very different you know if you're working towards something and or like you're a hobbyist or you're like you know i'm gonna do the thing which i think is actually kind of smart where you're working your full-time job and you're basically you know pulling in money so that you can afford to spend your nights and your weekends working towards a different goal that's great you know but the whole part-time like because we've seen it over time the difference between what you're able to accomplish when you're part-time versus I can now dedicate 100% of my time to this project. It, it's night and day. You, you can't even compare what you're able to accomplish and, and what you're able to put your brain power into versus this other world where you're, you're very stretched thin and like your brain has to spend most of its time on this other job, you know? World yeah. of difference. Yeah. It's, just, you know, it's all about scope management, right? Like if you don't yeah. have the time, don't take on such a large scope. It's just, it's fundamental. Yeah. And again, you know, we don't mean to uh, offend anyone. We don't know what was going on behind the scenes at Wintercool. And there's a lot of amazing developers out there doing just, you know, they're more productive than we are, even though they're only working part-time on game dev and all that stuff. Uh, But we're just talking about general practices, you know, like I think that scoping stuff down is, (laughs) that's, I think, is the like indie mantra. Like any article you see about, oh, here's some good practices or here's what we learned or here's some recommendations. Every single one of them is like, make your project smaller scope it down reduction that's something that we've been really trying to hammer home to ourselves as we start thinking about our next game it's like 
Reduce, reduce, reduce. Yes. Yeah, that's been like a, one of the design tenets is is reduction. Like this should be a practice in removing things that we've already think like that we've already assumed are going to make sense in the game. Remove them. And things that are like, oh, here, here'd be a cool idea. No, remove it. Reduce it. You know, simmer, simmer it down to the, the core <laughs> concept. Simmer down now. Simmer down. Uh, that's actually a great segue, Jeff, to the next game, which um, we're not going to talk too much about it, the specifics, but uh, it has become clear to us that behavior is going to be a really important aspect of this game. And uh, so I think it was Sunday you, you sent me this this link and you were really excited. Like, <laughs> you're like, like, like five paragraphs of text from you and you're like, oh man, what a good idea. And we're going to try this and this is going to be great. And <laughs> And I'll yes. put a link in the in the show notes, obviously, to the article, um, which is quite wordy. I'll give you a heads up. Like, if you if you're going to read it, you probably want to read it in sessions. You know, That's like do what I did. do one go over where you where you pass over the whole thing, and you're like, well, that was long and confusing. And then, you know, maybe maybe think about it, let it percolate, come back, read it again more slowly. That's what you did, right? It is. Uh, so basically, this article is about behavior trees and their implications and usages in for game AI, um, which, you know, as you just said, is, is obviously kind of right up our alley because uh, we're starting to think about the mechanics of our next game. And, and one of the big things that we're coming away with is that we're going to want to have some more complicated enemy NPC AI behavior. And so, right. I, and uh, the AI scripting in a wizard's literature is one of the areas that I hate the most about the game. I think it's, <laughs> <laughs> it was badly implemented. I mean, it works. Uh, it's one of these things where, like, on the surface, it, it's fine, but the implementation is just messy and, and not reasonable, and it's gross. Hey, who wrote that, Jeff? Uh, Loki. Loki? Your cat? Yes. You let your cat write a, a <laughs> core part of the code? That's the mistake. <laughs> you should have written that yourself. Irresponsible. <laughs> Loki is the, the CTO your, of, of Lost Decade Games. Do not let cats write your code. You should write it yourself. Right. <laughs> yes. lesson less of the day yes anyways um i mean it's hard to say right because it, it works so whatever but at the same time i wanted to find a better way and um i've heard the term behavior trees before it's something i really love about game dev uh or just programming in general right is that it seems like every month or every other week almost there's some technology that i hear about and i'm like oh god i have no idea what that's even about yeah and a lot of times i'm just like okay i don't have time for that like i can't think about this new system because it's too complicated for my brain and I'm busy and, and blah, blah, blah. But then every yeah. once in a while there comes along something where I really dig into it and it makes like this fundamental shift in my thinking about how to approach game dev. And one of those things was entity component. And oh, yeah. I've just been trending away from like object oriented classical based programming for a while. <clears throat> Which makes and, a lot of sense for JavaScript because there are no just native tools for right. There's uh, no classical classes, inheritance. There's no inheritance. Right. <laughs> I mean, there's like prototypal inheritance, but it doesn't work the same way that you would think. Definitely not classical. No. Although we use it that way a lot of times. You can, yeah, and we we do as well. But when I say trending, I mean that you know we don't write everything in like a purely functional style or a purely prototypal style. We kind of have this mix and match of what works best. But um, so, like for instance, our kind of rendering pipeline um with our scene graph is all classical hierarchical based right stuff but our game simulations are all these entity component like very abstracted kind of very bordering on functional programming right where it's like 
you have these entities and they're all just bags of data and those bags of data get passed around to various functions. Right. Anyways, I've talked about that ad nauseum, but this was kind of like a similar revelation for me. Like when I remember learning about entity component, you know, I was just like, whoa, this is amazing. Like this solves a lot of issues and I really dig this style and it makes a lot of sense in my head. And so when I was reading this behavior trees article, I kind of had that same impression because I've been struggling, you know, letting the AI behavior scripts percolate in my head. And I had some new approaches I was going to take post AWL, but, and I thought they were good until I read this article. (laughs) And I realized that they were just not anywhere near as awesome as this behavior tree thing would be. Yeah. And, uh, and you're right. Like the, the way to consume this article, because it is very, very long is that you should read it in, in chunks. And so what I did is I skimmed it first and I came away with almost zero understanding, but I was intrigued. <laughs> uh, and then I kind of like went back to it um, a little while later, not very long, maybe half an hour or an hour. And I just read it word for word, paragraph for paragraph. And I paused and I looked at the diagrams and I thought about it. And I just, I spent like probably an hour <laughs> reading this article. Nice. And, uh, but then I came away with a very, you know, pretty good understanding of, of how this thing works and why it's good and the conceptual tools to be able to implement it myself. Right. And one thing I really like about this article, and the guy actually mentions this in his article, is that when he was looking into behavior trees, there's a lot of articles on the internet about, you know, kind of like the surface level and um, also like a lot of like code details. Like implementation, but not why you'd take certain steps. Right. And um, not only implementation, but just kind of very superficial, like contrived examples almost. Right. You know, where it's like, okay, I can see this, but like, what about this complicated behavior I have in my head? Like, how would that work? And it's like, to make that leap from these kind of like very overly simplified examples to that is is hard. Um, Yeah. And it's weird that you see that type of article on the internet a lot, right? oh, let me explain to you A star and like here's a big bunch of code in Java. Right. And like maybe you understand Java, maybe you don't, but still it doesn't give you a lot of like conceptual understanding oftentimes. But uh, but this article is great because uh, it really just dealt with the abstract, which I think is is way more important because once you kind of understand it from a conceptual and abstract point of view, then you're free to implement it in your own language and you don't get tied down in the implementation necessarily um especially for us because like our implementation is quite different than a lot of other people's implementations because we don't use like classical based stuff for our game simulation i felt like the article lived in this good place where a lot of what it was talking about was abstract and so you know kind of language agnostic you could begin to fathom these ideas and how you would actually implement them in your own tech stack but it also had some solid examples uh, to kind of base that understanding on, you know, like, okay, entity opens door, entity walks through door, entity closes door. You know, like, like those, it would kind of root the, the abstractness in still the, the real world examples, which was nice. It was, yeah. And, and it kind of like kept building, right? So it took this kind of abstract example of an entity walking through a door and opening a door um, to like the nth degree, where at the end of the article, you know, he had this very complicated behavior where this NPC would look at a building, find all the doors and windows, systematically try to enter the building through all these doors and windows and fall back gracefully if it failed at any point, you know. And uh, and he kind of talked through, like, you know, this is, this is a guy working on a game called Project Zomboid. 
Yeah. Um, and so these are kind of very real world things that he had done. You should go read the article because if you're interested in game AI at all, uh, this is something I would recommend that you should read uh, because it's it's very enlightening, I thought. At the very least, even if you don't decide to implement behavior trees, it definitely kind of just, you know, opens up these ideas uh, in your mind about like alternate ways of doing things. So speaking of implementing behavior trees, you said you were going to play around with that yesterday. Did you actually start implementing? I did, actually. And uh, it, it was a little more difficult than I thought because behavior trees... So the thing with entity component is that it kind of dictates the separation of state and functionality, right? On one hand, you have entities, and entities are these bags of data. At least the way that we do entity component, right? Right. Because our entities are bags of data, and all of the state about an entity lives on this like very simple data structure. So in JavaScript, it's just you know a JavaScript object. It's an object literal. Yep. And it just has properties hanging off of it. And those properties may be other objects or arrays or numbers or strings or whatever. They're just simple, simple data. They're not classes. Like it could be converted to JSON. There's no functions and no, right. like, you know, un- unallowed data. And then separately, we have what we call systems. And systems are basically just stateless collections of functions that take entities and operate on them. So right. the physics system might say, okay, every update, I'm going to take this entity as a parameter to my update function and the delta time, and I'm going to step through the entity's components and look at its velocity and its heading and whatever else and other physics-related data, and I'm going to update its position in the world, and then I'm done. I'm going to move on to the next entity. And so you can kind of do these things in batches. The, the problem with, with behavior trees is behavior trees have a lot of state. To back up just a little bit, uh, behavior trees are basically it's a tree structure that's a collection of nodes and each node um, can either be what's called like uh, it's either called a node or a leaf right and, and in general the nodes are things that kind of control the flow uh, through the tree and then the right. leaves are like actions that you would take so an example would be um, a sequence node and a sequence node would be uh, a node that has n children and it executes those children in, sequ- in sequence. And so the example that the article gives is like walk to the door as an action, open the door as an action, walk through the door as an action, close the door behind you as an action. And so each of those actions is a leaf node and then the uh, the sequence is called a composite node because it kind of is this aggregate of subnodes. Um, but basically, the real power of the trees comes from these composite nodes because there are a few different kinds of composite nodes. There's one that executes things in a sequence. There's ones that executes things until it fails. So you could say, you know, first try this. If it doesn't work, try this. If it doesn't work, try that. If it doesn't work, try that. And so you get this behavior where, like, okay, first you try to open the door. And if you can't, you try to unlock the door. And if you can't, then you smash the door. Right. Uh, but you don't ever try to do all the things. And then there's a bunch of other like little kind of flow control tweaks. But you know, the end result is that you can have these kind of complicated behaviors that fall back gracefully throughout the tree. You know, It's like go down this branch. Um, if you result in failure, then you kind of come back down a different path. And if that results in success, then you don't continue down this third path. Um, and they all kind of share this state. And so each node has its own state, right? Because this is stuff that's running over the course of many, many frames. And so... You know, for example, like if you're in this sequence node, that node is running, 
and it's also running one of its children, which is like walk to the door. And so walking to the door takes some time. And so during that time, this node is kind of running. And when it gets to its destination, it's like, okay, I've reached my destination. Then that node would fire a, hey, success, I got to the door. And then the composite node above it, which is running in the sequence, would say, great. So the walk to the door leaf node completed with success. So I'm going to move on to the next leaf node, which is open the door. Right. And, uh, and so the power of these trees is, becomes evident when you think about like how modular you can make your entity behaviors, right? Like you can have these little action leaf nodes that are like move from location A to B. And then you can insert that node almost anywhere in this tree and create these really complicated behaviors. It's kind of tough to describe because it's, it's a little, <laughs> it's one of these things you have to visualize. And so seeing yeah, the it, visuals help. Yeah, the flowcharts really help. And so definitely, at the very least, go check out this article and look at the flowcharts. And you can kind of get the sense of like, you know, the AI script kind of traverses through this tree um, every so often and, and it takes these actions. So how far did you get in your implementation? Because this sounds like a really complicated beast. Um, it is and it isn't. So here's the thing is like, the complicated part is figuring out how the state and the functionality live together and get called in, in harmony, right? So with functional programming, right, like one of the things that I want to do is I want to separate the state from the functionality. And I want to have these nodes and these nodes need behavior like, okay, I'm going to update, I'm going to init, I'm going to run through my set of children, I'm going to activate this sub node and do this other thing. And the nodes can do all these different actions, but they're all very much based on like, what's the current state of the node, right? How many children do I have? What's my current node status? What child am I currently executing? What's the status of that node that I'm currently executing? And like, there's all a bunch of other, you know, as you probably know, working on, on Wizards Lizard, there's a lot of state variables that happen with AI behaviors, right? right? Like, am, what phase of this am I in or whatever? Yeah. So that part is the bulk of it. And, and I think that I've kind of like turned the corner on that implementation. Um, nice. But basically, it's running, basically, all, all of the behavior tree state lives on the entity. And what I do is whenever I need to call a node, I take that state and I execute the node function, like the nodes update function in the context of that state object. Because JavaScript has great, I think it's great, like call and apply style. <laughs> it is. It's great. Uh, context. It's so and, flexible. It is because then you can write the nodes as if they had their own state and they don't, right? So I have like these yeah. stateless nodes that can access this dot whatever property, but they don't actually have state. I just kind of tricked them into thinking that they do. And so that's uh, that's made things quite a bit easier. But um, I've been writing a lot of code and I haven't actually tested it yet. <laughs> so we'll see. So you're saying it's done and ready for production. Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. Excellent. Well, let's ship it. <laughs> ship it. <laughs> Anyways, uh, yeah, it's it's been a lot of fun, and it's just it's a really powerful concept, and I'm really excited to uh, to see how it works out for us. It works out great timing wise because we're kind of zeroing in. I mean, we already know what the next game is going to be, but we're not going to tell you yet because it needs to bake some more. But we're we're zeroing in on the things that we want to tackle this time around. And some of the major ones are the environment, because in a wizard's lizard, we didn't put nearly as much work into the environment as we would have liked. And it's an area 
that has a lot of potential and uh, we want to spend time there. It sounds like fun. It sounds like it'll have a lot of benefit. It sounds like it'll create some really interesting experiences and kind of hand in hand with that is these, you know, mobs, these, these, uh, these monsters or these just um, entities in the world that can, you know, navigate that environment in interesting ways and, and do so intelligently, not just, you know, in a, in a wizard's lizard to see these zombies and mutants that just kind of make a beeline for you. And if there's a block in the way, they're just walking into the block, you know, and it works for zombies and stuff. It's okay. But we want to have more interesting behavior that hopefully will lead to some like emergent behavior. Like, oh, wow. I had no idea that the mobs could do that, you know? Right. They're, and, they're uh, smart. And we're reducing the surface area at the same time. It's like we're going to have less entities or less NPC monsters or whatever, but they yeah. will each have more complicated behavior. Right, yeah, and we're going to extend that better. So it'll be like there's this behavior tree. It's very complicated and has some intimate understanding of how to deal with the environment and the player and you know the other surroundings. And basically, it'll all kind of root from there. It'll, it'll come from there. And then it'll be, you know, this behavior is exactly the same, only, you know, this this uh, mob has a shield and, and understands how to use it. So there's just like, it'll be kind of all the same behavior, but plus, or like just tweaking something like this, uh, you know, this positive is now a negative, that kind of thing. Right. Because in a wizard's lizard, we had this kind of sprawling directionless sort of ai that was like okay yeah. we need a new monster and what could it do i don't know let's make something completely new like it bounces off the walls or whatever you know yeah uh, and there was no kind of thematic or consistency to enemies right but uh yeah we actually bought the, the domain name for our next game already because that's how we roll yeah we we wanted to buy it like a few months ago but like I, I seriously have to restrain myself sometimes. I have to like handcuff myself to a you know radiator or something, and I'm like reaching for the mouse. It's like no, I want to want to buy the domain. It's available. Who knows? It could be bought at any moment, and like, you know it probably won't be. It's survived this long, and it's a weird name that no one else would probably want or think of, right? Right. Yeah, that's kind of my thinking. Is that if if it's available right now in the history of the internet then yeah. you probably don't have to worry about it to, so much. Unless like you do something stupid, like you Google for it or whatever. Yeah, exactly. I know that I do stupid crap like that. And uh, just even like searching for a document in the you know Google Chrome taskbar, it is hitting the Google database. Like you should know that, you know? So if you have some unique word, it, it exists in the world now. It's not only in your head, you know? I have that kind of paranoia. Right. Yeah, I'm not so much concerned with Google itself, but yeah, if you... It's mostly like if you use one of these services like, oh, like domain name lookup service. Yeah. Oh, no, those are bad. You should do, if you ever search for a domain, do it from the command line with like the, the who is command. Because that way it only looks for your, your local uh, information. It doesn't go out into the internet and be like, hey, everybody, I'm interested in buying this domain. So make sure to buy it up and charge me 10 times. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like that happens. It, it has happened to people. Oh, yeah. Anyways, uh, yeah, we're excited. Um, we're also continuing to work on a Wizards of the Lizard. Yes. Um, I think we'll probably have the item update ready in a couple weeks. There's some other promotional stuff we're trying to work out right now, so it's hard for us to say exactly when that is going to launch. But basically what's happening is we're trying to time some promotional stuff so they don't overlap right. uh, so we can maximize the benefit of both. And yeah, 
<laughs> yeah, when we do that, we should talk about uh, in depth all the interesting items we added because we, we've tried to focus on items that didn't feel like other items so much, and that kind of add a f- breath of fresh air to a wizard's lizard. There's a lot of really fun totems. I think that totems is the area so far we've made the most improvement. Um, yeah, definitely. But you know, there's going to be more to come, and in, in, especially in the armor and, and weaponry departments as well. Well, thanks for listening. Uh, if you like hearing the sound of our voices, we were guests on a podcast called Everyone Talking at Once. You can find a link in the show notes. I want to give a shout out to T2 Norway, who is always giving us some great requests for songs to play you out with on the show. And you can request your own song as well, although it needs to be Joshua Morse so we don't get sued. And today we're going to play you out with Summer Breeze. Thanks for listening. Ship it. Disc sucks.